watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 2, and the Lord answered to me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So as Matthew said, my name's John. I used to be a pastor and preach multiple times a week, and so now I'm a Bible teacher at a high school, and so I rarely get to preach, so I'm like, you know, kid on Christmas getting to preach right now. So this is a book that we saw last week, the book of Habakkuk, our, our friend with the weird name here, um, which is about suffering. The Bible, God put the Bible together in such a way that there are events that happen in your life, or there are things that happen, like various experiences that we have that you can go to specific books and find help for your soul. And that's what this book of Habakkuk is for those who suffer. This, um, the things that I learned from this book over the past three weeks, I wish I knew when I was a kid. When I was eight, my parents got divorced, and it was and still is the most traumatic event of my life. I can still remember the first night I didn't live with my dad anymore, and I moved, and my parents separated, and I lived with my mom. And at my grandparents' house, I can still remember where we were like it was yesterday. There is nothing that has impacted me more than that event. There is nothing that has, has had more. The rip, let me put this. The ripple effects of that event in my life have been staggering. Um, I, I, in no time, my parents got remarried, um, each got remarried, and new normal set in, but I didn't really know how to process what just happened. And um, so what, what I did, the way that I figured out how to exist after that, was I started developing rules for myself. Rules like you just can't trust people. Because what happened was, I, I remember, I don't remember a lot from my childhood, but I do remember asking my parents, because they fought so much, are you guys going to get divorced? And they would always say, no, we're not going to get divorced. And so I found comfort in that. I found security in that. And I found protection in that. So when that was gone, I, 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 you cannot trust anybody. People are not safe. So keep your distance from everyone. People must prove themselves in order to be close to me. Women are a waste of space. Marriage isn't um, worth the trouble that it could cause me. Singleness is safe, so I'm just going to stay there. For over 20 years, I based my life on those principles, those rules, which really didn't help me all that much. It actually caused more devastation just for me and those around me. But I think we can all relate to the idea that something bad happens, some horrible event takes place in our lives and what we need is advice. We need, we need a friend who's going to come along and say something good to us, something beneficial, something helpful, something that's going to be solid when everything's going bad. And, and that's what Habakkuk is. He is that friend. He is the, the friend that come, comes alongside you and tells you good things, things that will heal and help rather than harm and destroy. 
After studying this passage, like I said, I wish someone told me at 8 or at 18 or 28, like I wish someone would have told me the things that I, I, I got to see in this passage this week because they are absolutely powerful. Habakkuk is not someone who, he's not like a, the doc, the cancer doctor who's like, oh, you have cancer, well, let me stand over here and like study you. Like he, he is intimately acquainted with grief. He, he knew what it meant for everything to go bad. Last week, if you were here, we saw that he lived at a time when, when evil was good and when good was evil and God was ignored and idols were obeyed and the people did whatever they wanted. And he's looking around going, God, are you going to do something about this? Like all this stuff that's going on around me is awful. Why are you letting this happen? Why are you silent? Where are you? How long are you going to let this go on? Are you going to do anything about this? Step in. Fix this. If, I'm, if this is agitating me, why isn't it bothering you? What are you doing? And God says, I'm going to blow your mind. I am going to fix this. And the way I'm going to fix it is I'm going to send the Babylonians, this like, like millions of, you know, like Al-Qaeda terrorists, and they're going to come into this area and destroy my people. They're going to punish them. And the back it goes, wait a minute. I know we're bad, but they're worse. How could you, a good God, let them do this to us? What are you doing? Can you relate to that kind of confusion? Obviously not specific kind. But can you relate to God? What are you doing? God, why, why me? God, I look at my circumstances and I compare them to, to what, what, what Habakkuk or others are saying in this book, and I go, I, I don't see that. I see the exact opposite of that, in fact. Why do the wicked prosper, God? Why do they get ahead? Why do the wicked step? Why, why does this wicked person step on me in order to get ahead? Why in the world aren't you doing anything? Why? Where are you? Why aren't you acting? Why are you hiding? Maybe everything is just chance. Maybe everything is just coincidence. Maybe there really is no God like over all things. Maybe he is, but maybe he doesn't love like the Bible says. Maybe it's just a bunch of lies. Are there answers? Are there good ways to respond when everything goes bad that can not, can not only sustain us through pain, but actually give us a perspective that maybe might even possibly allow us to worship in our pain? Habakkuk says there are answers. He gives us hope. And since there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are in bad times or those who will be in bad times, let's all jump into this text and find out what that help actually is. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Our friend writes, You are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Why then do you idly look at traitors? Why, why are you looking at this traitor, these traitors and not doing anything about it? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up. That's a phrase meaning to kill. When the wicked kill the man more righteous than he. Why, why, why do bad people kill good people? Why, why do you let that happen and do nothing? You make mankind like the fish of the sea. 
like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the, here's the, the Babylonians in particular, he brings them all up with a hook. He, he takes his net, all of his armies and all of his power, and he just engulfs other peoples and other cultures and literally puts hooks in their bottom lips and yanks them from wherever they are to Babylon, humiliating them completely, making them look stupid and awful, treating them as subhuman, treating them like fish in a, in a net. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them up with his dragnet there. He sacrifices to his net. He actually worships his power and his, 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 the, the things that allow him to, to go to war and win. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. He Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, are you going to let this happen forever? There seems to be a tone of confusion and maybe even a little hopelessness. And notice why. Is it true, verse 13, that God was not doing anything? He was remaining silent when oppression and injustice uh, was happening around Habakkuk. He's asking, but chapter 2 tells us, no, he, he saw it. He was going to do something about it. Verse 17, was God going to keep allowing the wicked to plunder and oppress and even laugh while humiliating the people that they conquer? Even do that to, to God's own people, the Jews? Was he going to let that happen? Chapter 2 says no. But we learned something very important from these honest questions. Because in the midst of our pain, our feelings about our circumstances have the tendency to take over, Right? And then the more our feelings bombard us, the more our thoughts um, um, go crazy in our heads, what happens is we start to give our feelings, we start to give those thoughts authority to tell us what's really going on in the world. So like Habakkuk here, God, I know your word says that you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, but do you see what's going on over there? Obviously you don't. Obviously, you, obviously, either you don't see it or you do see it and you don't really care. What is that? It's our emotions. It's our feelings start to bubble over. And in fact, from there, our feelings dominate. They even cause things like using God's attributes against him. If you were a loving God, you'd never let that happen to me. I'm a father, you know, you might say. I'm a father, and I would never treat my kid like that because I love them. But yet, I'm going through hell right now, and you're just letting it happen. What father does that to his kid? From there, what happens is our emotions, what are they doing? Our feelings are slowly or quickly pushing us away from God. And as a result, these, these terrible times that, that really are meant to draw us closer to God push us away from him, and then temptations get stronger. Those, those thoughts move into places where, that we're embarrassed to even think about. But what did they do? It pushed you away from God. So if you and I are going to grow from our pain, if we're going to respond well when everything is going bad, you need to learn to doubt your feelings. That's point number one if you're taking notes. When things go bad, doubt your feelings. To respond well when everything goes bad, you must learn to doubt your feelings. I've seen lives turned around. I've seen friendships restored, families put back together. God trusted again when people simply said, I'm not going to trust the feelings, the thoughts that are going on in my head. I'm not going to trust them. I'm going to doubt them. Have you ever noticed that those feelings are almost never God-centered? Ever? They're always you-centered, Right? That's why it says things. It's, that's why your, our minds will say things like, you know what? 
you are going through a hard time right now, you deserve that piece of pie. In fact, you deserve the whole pie. Eat the whole thing. Right? Things are going awful right now. Pornography. Yeah. Alcohol. Yeah. St. Patrick's Day. Awesome. I have an excuse to go get wasted and drown out my sorrows. Or work. Or a hobby. Or whatever else. It doesn't push us to God. They rarely ever encourage us to move closer to Him. They always push us away from Him. Because of my parents' divorce, I thought I wasn't trusting people, but really, I wasn't trusting God. I believed, without knowing it because of my bad experience, that I doubted God's love. I doubted the fact that He cared about me. I would say, like, yeah, God loves me. Yes, He has a wonderful plan for my life. Yes, you can trust Him, but... In that, like, on the inside, if someone really started asking me questions, I didn't trust him at all. I, he was way too wild for me. He could do whatever he wants, and I don't like what he did to me. I don't, I don't like that at all. So I would, so on the inside, partially without even knowing it, I would set up walls against him because I'm saying, you're not good. I can't really trust you. And why did that happen? Because I gave my feelings authority over my life to interpret reality for me instead of God. And that was not helpful. That was not good. If we are going to grow when hard times hit, and either you're in it or you're going to be, or someone around you is, you need to learn to doubt your feelings. That's what Habakkuk does. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Despite his questions, despite his wrestling, at his core, he trusts God. That's why it, the book doesn't end in verse 17 of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, this is what someone does when they trust God. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He has a complaint against God, and he knows God is there. He knows God is, is going to give him answers. He's going to get the help he needs. So, so what Habakkuk does here in 2.1 is he strengthens, strengthens himself. By patiently waiting for God to respond. And he has every reason to wait for him. Look at what he knows about God. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. These are things he knows to be true about God. He says, are, are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord. Let's just stop there. The word Lord. That word means that he is. He's eternal. He's, he's always been, which means he's seen it all. But this name, this title, Lord, was God's special name that he gave to his people and said, you will know me by this name. What it refers to is relationship. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the big guy. He is, look at verse 12 again, he is my God. He's my God. There's relationship there. Notice he says there in verse 12 again, he is my holy one. You don't look on evil indifferently. You're not apathetic to this. You are holy. But you're not just out there as holy. You're, you're my holy one. I can trust you. And it says, continue on, Lord, you've ordained them to punish, and you, O oh rock, have established them for reproof. You are a rock. You are a refuge. As the, the waves of pain are crashing over my life, you stand firm. You are strong. You'll protect me, your stability, you are security. Really, where else would Habakkuk turn? I mean, here, he, here he's saying, like, you've, you've, you've ordained them, they're going to come and punish us, but even in the midst of that, I can trust you. Look at verse 12 again. He says, we shall not die. That is a declaration. 
That is a, a, a strong announcement that I'm confident in you, even though I don't understand, even though I don't have all the answers, and even the answers that I do have, I don't like them very much. We will not die. You will take care of us. If you're going to grow from your pain, if you're going to respond well when everything goes bad, if you're going to keep your head above water in the storms, then number, point number two, you need to embrace a mysterious God. You need to embrace a mysterious God. See, when we go to drugs or alcohol in pain, what we're saying to those things is, I trust you. You are going to give me what I need. No matter what it is, it's work or whether it's pornography or whether it's um, some person or whether it's some experience. I'm going to go have fun. What we're saying is, what we're doing is we're, we're turning from God and we're turning to those things and saying, that is going to be my help. That is going to be my comfort. That is going to be my peace. That's going to be my, my joy. I'm going to find it there. That's going to help me. What I would do when hard times hit, back when gas was like 85 cents a gallon, I would just drive. You know, I just keep driving now that's, you know, impossible to do that. But then, you know, I would just drive and what I would do is I'd just sit and I'd think and I'd process all by myself and I would, I would think about the event and then I would think about what should I have done differently and, and then I would go, well, what does that teach me about people or what does that teach me about this person? And I'd come to my conclusions, I'd wrap it all up and go, good, I'm done. Now I know how to handle this and if this ever happens again, now I know how to handle it. I totally trusted, not God, but who? Me. I can trust me. No one else is going to hurt me. All those other people will, but not me. That's a lie right there. Hurt myself all the time. But, you know, no, I'm good. But when we trust a God that we don't fully understand, who says that my ways are not your ways, my thoughts, not yours, when we do that in the middle of our pain, we respond well. In fact, Habakkuk, his name means embrace. And that's what he does with God. Though he's confused, though he doesn't have all the answers, like I said, though he has some answers and he doesn't like them, he goes, you know what? I'm going to pray, and I know he's going to answer me. I know he is. C.S. Lewis said God shouts to us in our pain. He gets our attention. So if you're going through pain or you know someone who's going through a hard time, and you're like, yeah, this sounds okay, but how do I do that? How do I, I mean, you say embrace a mysterious God. Well, what does that look like? How do I do that? You don't understand, like, this is hard what I'm going through right now. What do I do? First thing, how do you, how do, you do this? First is to silence your feelings. It goes from doubting your feelings to silencing them. That's what he does in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I'm done talking now. I'm going to sit, and I'm going to be patient, and I'm going to wait for God to answer. Silence your thoughts. Silence those feelings. Silence those things that are ripping you away from God. And then number two, in response to that, trust. Think, I mean. Think about God. Think about God. What do you know about him? We saw that's what he did in chapter 1, verse 12. He starts recounting true things about God and says, oh, I know God is like this. And what does that do? It helps you with point number three here, letter C, helps you overshadow your problem with God. See, what do we do with our emotions? What do we do with our feelings? We take those things and they overshadow God. We start doing, we, our feelings get so big and our, our pain gets so big that we can't see God behind it anymore. So what, all I'm saying to do is do the exact same thing 
Only instead of doing that with your feelings, doing that with, do that with God. And go, no, I'm not going to let my feelings dictate what's going on. I'm going to let God dictate what's going on. I'm not going to let my feelings run my life and run my thoughts. I'm going to let God do that. And instead of listening to myself, I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to speak truth to myself. That's why the Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. Because we take out the truth that we know about God, and we don't just fight against false teachers. We fight against the false teacher in our heads that's trying to rip you away from God. We overshadow your problem with God. And finally, if you do that, and you're doing one through three, and for some reason that doesn't help, and you're trying, all I say, don't give up. And number, two, and number four, pray that God takes your problem. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says, cast, throw your problems on God, because he what? cares for you. But if you're not thinking truth about God and you're not saying to yourself, God cares about me, he cares about this. If you're not doing that constantly, then you will never give him your issues. You will hold them to yourself and say, no, I got this. In my own life, I had to get to the point where I said, if God doesn't know, this is me like doing this right here. I, I would have to say to myself things like, if God doesn't know what he's doing with my life, like here, how in the world can I trust him for my eternal life? If he can't take care of this like 30, 50, 80 year time span for my life, how in the world can I trust him for eternity? And I started saying, well, wait a minute. If I can trust him for eternity, can't I trust him with this? If I can trust him, if he's, in other words, if my, either my feelings all these years are right, are right and God is wrong, or God is right and my feelings are liars. It's one or the other. There's nothing in the middle. Trust me is what God says to those who want to know him and to those who already know him. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. This verse has been called the greatest text of the Bible. This verse has been called the central theme of Scripture. One rabbi, a couple hundred years after Jesus, said, Moses gave us 613 commandments, and Habakkuk replaced them all with one. The righteous will live by his faith. Verse 4. What does that mean? It's such a huge verse. That's such a big idea. What does that mean? What is he getting at? The righteous. What does that mean? It's a, it's a legal term, which in contrast to the proud in verse 4, knows, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's not upright within him. In, in contrast to the proud, the righteous live by faith. Well, how can I be righteous? How's that possible? How can I be right with God? How can he declare me innocent? Think of the Ten Commandments. I've broken, like, maybe you haven't, I, I've probably broken all of them, if I really think about it. Can any of us be innocent in the eyes of a God who, with all those crimes we've committed against him? The righteous person is innocent because they're, they, they've stopped saying, you know what, I'm a good person, I trust me. And they say, no, I'm not a good person, but I trust him. They live by faith. Think about that. When somebody says, I'm a good person, I've done a lot of good things, and I've done a lot of bad things, and my good is definitely outweighs my bad, and I'll 
be in heaven just fine. What are we saying? Who are we trusting in that? We're not trusting God. We're trusting who? Us again? That's no bueno. It's not good. Righteousness, being right with God, can be enjoyed by everyone, it says here, through faith. Because faith, it strips us of our arrogance. It says, I'm not in charge. I'm not good. I need you to rescue me because I'm in trouble. And this solid trust in Jesus, this commitment that lasts, it's how we receive life. And for you, Christian, it's, it's how your life continues for the rest of your life. It's not a one-time act that, okay, I believe God and now I'm good and everything else is fine. It's I continue to believe him. I continue to trust him that no matter what happens for the rest of my life, I trust him. Our relationship with God begins by faith and it is sustained by faith. It, it's, faith creates our relationship with God and it sustains our relationship with God for the rest of our lives. And we see this kind of steady trust, this, this faith and confidence in the Savior, right? Think about it. He said that, John 16, 33, in your life you will have trials, right? He promised us that. That between the date of your birth and, when you, and the date of your death, it will be marked by trials. And isn't it good to know that, one, looking at his life, he didn't, like, his wasn't, just perfection constantly as far as the things happening to him. He went through hard times. People didn't believe him. People mocked him. People hated him. They wanted him dead. But think about this. When, you, when you're sitting there and you're like, God, why? Why in the world is this happening? Can you find comfort and be sustained by the fact that when, God, when, when Christ didn't know what was going on, that he cried out, my God, my God, what? Why? Why? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to not understand and go, I don't know what's going on here. And not only that, right before this event, in the garden, before he was betrayed and arrested and tortured and mocked and murdered, knowing his time to die was to come, but knowing that he was going to be made sin and God was going to unleash his wrath on Christ, knowing all of that was going to happen, what was his response to God as he prayed in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. That's faith. That's embracing a God who always does what's right, regardless of my feelings, my temptations, my circumstances, who doesn't need to explain anything to me, like we saw last week, who doesn't give me explanations, who gives me revelation and says, this is who I am, and I know what's going on in your life. Trust me. Embrace me. Hold me close. But there is one thing standing in the way of that, happening in your life and in my life. As I was this is the third time I've done this, and in between the last service and this one, this point really hit me, thinking through like all of the reasons why the pain that I, I, I went through and, and the continual pain after all of those thoughts kind of took over, all really boiled down to point number three. Look at chapter two, verse four again. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So on the one side, you have the, the righteous who, who trust God, who embrace him, who, 
who, who believe in him, and on the other side you have the prideful. Standing in the way of trusting God in the midst of your pain is your pride, is my pride. The Hebrew word translated puffed up means bloated. It's the person so occupied with, with themselves that they swell with pride. Have you ever heard of that, that, that phrase? This is not good. Look at verse 6. There's this introduction when God starts to say, no, I'm going to take care of the Babylonians. Just wait. And notice halfway through verse 6, there's this big word. Woe. That's not something you want God to ever say to you. Look at verse 9. Woe. Verse 12. Woe. Verse 15. Woe. Verse 19. Woe. This is a word used of unavoidable disaster. It is coming for you, he's saying. This is directed at the Babylonians. It's directed at anyone who would stand in their train and, and follow, follow their examples. And these guys were arrogant. Chapter, verses 5 through 20, talk about them. They would not just annihilate people with intense violence, but they raped and they pillaged the nations they conquered. They treated them as subhuman. They exploited them, humiliated them, all in the name of money and power and their gods. And God was not looking the other way. They would get theirs, and they did their captives, the people that they conquered, would come back and destroy them, it says here in Habakkuk. It says that everything they worked for would come to nothing. It would just evaporate. It says that when they humiliated other people, they would be humiliated. Their wealth and their idols, all of that would betray them. And everything that they thought they were working for ended up being nothing. And in the end, what goes around comes around. The pain they caused others boomerang back and hit them. And in, and in 539 BC, the Babylonians basically disappeared from history. We are no longer today caring about the Babylonians. They do not exist anymore. Why? Because what God said in this passage came to pass. And the reason this passage is written is because of their pride. There are strong warnings against pride in chapter 2. So if you're going to grow from your pain, if you're going to respond well when everything goes bad, you must, I must, we must humble ourselves. Humble yourself. Think about it. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. And I don't know about you, but when I'm really going through it, the thing I need most is grace. I need God to be gracious to me. I need God to help me. I need God to be there and to, to be the medicine, to be the, the calm to, in the storm. Like, I need that, but I'm never going to have that if I'm constantly doing this to him. If I'm constantly letting my thoughts push me away from him, if I'm constantly going to other things, if I'm constantly believing myself, then he is distant from me. Our feelings inflame our pride. Our pride pushes from God. And the one thing I need, which is God, I can't have. I don't have. I need humility. Now, if your pain is a result of things you can't control, like natural disasters or freak accidents or genetics or evil people, pride can creep in and make things worse, right? I mean, our questions can become accusations, like in Job. I don't know if you've read that, but Job starts out really well, but he doesn't end well. He's got multiple dozen chapters where he's just like, God, I am good and I don't deserve this. And I want to walk into your presence and point at you and say, I don't deserve this. And God shows up and is like, who do you think you are? Why? Because what Job needed was humility. See, we start thinking that God sinned against us. 
that God did something wrong to us by our trials? What is that? That's pride. Our, our whys become, why me? I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. Some of you are holding on to things right now that you've been holding on for years, maybe decades. And the only thing that's keeping you from releasing that is your pride. Humble yourself. Sometimes we're the ones causing other people's pain, like the Babylonians. And if that's you and you're causing spouse pain or a family member, or a coworker, or a neighbor, please avoid the pain that's coming your way. This chapter is clear. Take those woes seriously. Talk to God now. There will be people up here, but get that right. This pride will destroy you. Avoid that boomerang that's coming if you're the one causing people pain. Regardless of whether your pain is from where it's coming from, humble yourself. Remind yourself of God, and instead of comparing God to your problem, compare God to yourself and go, whoa, there's no reason in the world I should have anything to do with you. God, you, you are a great God, and I trust you. I don't have all the answers. The answers I have I don't like. I'm going to trust you anyways because my feelings lie. You never do. Do that. God will get bigger. You will get smaller. And that's good because as humility begins to seek into your heart, you know what happens? It's easier for you to embrace God, the one source of hope in the midst of your pain. So if you're in pain today, don't be deaf to the hope that we've looked at. If you know someone who's in pain, don't be happy with like trite phrases, you know, when life gives you lemon, make, make lemonade, you know. Don't be happy with that. Give them real hope, and that real hope is God. Encourage them. I mean, let me put it this way. I wish I doubted my feelings instead of giving them so much authority in my life. I wish I would have said, shut up. Who do you think you are, feelings? Like, stop that. Instead of letting them run me and letting them push me into places where I thought I was fine, but really into, into behaviors that ultimately hurt me even more. I wish I embraced God, a God who I could trust, even though his plan for my life included pain that I've only recently come to realize, like, even though it hurts, that's a good thing. I wish I humbled myself, but instead I became prideful and self-sufficient and cold and uncaring and unfeeling and even mean. If we will listen to our friend with the funny name, Habakkuk, we may actually do the unthinkable. In chapter 3, after God says all of this, you know what Habakkuk does? God doesn't say, I'm just going to lift you out of all of that, put you over in Hawaii, and everything's going to be great. He keeps him in the pain, and Habakkuk's response is, I will worship you. We could go from, like, not trusting God to trusting God to actually worshiping him in our pain and even for our pain you will just simply embrace him, if I will embrace him and trust him. It's like this song says, this is my father's world. Have you ever looked at these words? This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, what? God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Should my heart be ever sad? Should, should I always be in pain and sad? No, the Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. Christ reigns. Let the earth be glad. 
you can actually say that in your pain. If you will doubt your feelings, if you will embrace a mysterious God, and if you will humble yourselves. Let's pray. God, as I think about this passage and I think about it in terms of my own life, I'm so grateful to you for the people in my life who've been helping me and, and promoting you and, and causing me to humble myself and see your, see your goodness in the midst of pain. I think of the, the guy who came to your son and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I, I pray for the people in this room. I pray that you will give them grace and be kind to them as you've been kind to me and please bless them with, with the truths that, that this man, Habakkuk, our friend, that, that, that things he said would, would be a blessing to all of us. God, he writes in 2.14 that there will come a day when your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And God, when we trust you in the midst of our pain, when we say no to our feelings and yes to your truth, we are making you look great. We are a part of, of you spreading your glory as people see your greatness in our pain. God, I beg you, please, please do this in our midst. We will be a stronger people. We will be a stronger church. And you, most importantly, will get more glory. God, do that, please, I pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.